every week there is a lot of information to cover about COVID-19. I'm sure you have heard of this news, but here you have it again for historical purposes. So recently Pfizer and BioNTech announced, that was on September 20th, 2021, that their COVID-19 vaccine is protective in pediatric patients between 5 and 11 years of age. Let's remember that this vaccine is being used for patients older than 12, but so far none of the vaccines have been authorized for younger patients. A submission to the FDA by these companies have been sent, uh, but no approval has been given yet. However, recently we mentioned that you, uh, we mentioned to you that a booster shot for the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines were likely to be authorized by the FDA around September 20th for a booster, right? Indeed, an authorization was given for a booster shot on September 22nd, 2021, but this authorization was given to the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine only, not the Moderna vaccine, and it can be given at least six months after the completion of the primary series. The patients who are authorized to receive the booster shots are patients who are 65 years of age and older, and patients who are between 18 and 64 who are at high risk of severe COVID, and patients who are between 18 and 64 years of age with frequent exposure to COVID-19, such as in their work or in their institution. So the Moderna vaccine has not been given any authorization for a booster shot yet, but uh, we're waiting for that because that's a vaccine that we're using at work in, in, in our workplace. Let's remember that both Pfizer and Moderna have been authorized for a third dose in patients who are immunocompromised. So the third dose can be given four weeks after completing the initial two doses of these vaccines. So that's for both, for Pfizer and Moderna. So you give the two shots and then four weeks later you can get a third shot. Only the patients who are immunocompromised. So these patients include patients who are uh, receiving active cancer treatment or if they received an organ transplant or have a, a severe immunodeficiency. Uh, so stay tuned for more updates in the future. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA and sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of uh, Rio Bravo Q Week, and guess who we have here today? She hasn't been here for a while, so I'm so happy that she's here today. So introduce yourself. Hi everyone, it's me, Dr. Savelli. That's Savelli with a C. So happy to be back. I've been at the hospital on pretty heavy rotations, but I'm glad to be here. So, and she's doing the OB rotation right now, so we're going to mm -hmm. talk about some topics in OB. So let's start with aspirin and preeclampsia. And this is an update from the USPSTF. And she's here to give us that update. Okay, so aspirin and preeclampsia. So on September 28th, 2021, the USPSTF released their recommendations about the use of aspirin to prevent preeclampsia in pregnancies that are high risk. The recommendation is consistent with the previous recommendation of 2014. New evidence has reinforced 
that aspirin is effective at reducing the risk of perinatal mortality when used properly. Yeah, the recommendation is like this, exactly like this. It says the USPSTF recommends the use of low-dose aspirin, that's 81 milligrams per day, as preventive medication after 12 weeks of gestation in persons who are at high risk for preeclampsia. This is a grade B recommendation. Remember that a grade B recommendation means the net benefit of this preventive intervention is moderate to substantial. So who's at risk for preeclampsia? You can classify the risk as high, moderate, and low. So for high, high risk, preeclampsia during previous pregnancies, especially if you had an adverse outcome, multifetal gestation, chronic hypertension, type 1 or 2 diabetes before pregnancy, kidney disease, autoimmune disease, or a combination of multiple moderate risk factors. Recommend aspirin if a woman has one or more of those high risk factors. So let's talk about the moderate, moderate risk factors. Um, and I think this is probably, <clears throat> excuse me, is allergy season. So uh, usually these, most of our patients are in this group in the moderate risk. So a patient who hasn't had any babies before, a nulliparity, obesity, history of preeclampsia in a mother or sister, so direct relatives, black persons, low income, age 35 or older, personal history factors such as low birth weight or small for gestational age in a previous pregnancy, or any previous adverse pregnancy outcome, or um, if you had a baby between uh, more than 10 years ago, uh, more than 10 year pregnancy interval, and in vitro conception. So you can recommend aspirin if the patient in this group has two or more of these moderate risk factors. You may recommend aspirin even to women with one risk factor depending on your clinical judgment. Excellent, and so low risk. This means you would not recommend aspirin to a pregnant person who has low risk for preeclampsia. A patient is considered low risk if she has a previous uncomplicated term delivery and has none of the above uh, risk factors mentioned. Yeah, as a side note, Dr. Civelli, given the current movement of, for diversity, equality, and inclusion, the article also states that black persons have higher rates of preeclampsia and are at increased risk for serious complications due to various societal and health inequities not due to biological propensities. So one question that Dr. Civelli brought to the table was, when do you stop aspirin in pregnancy if you are using it for preeclampsia uh, prevention? So the decision to continue, Dr. Civelli, we had to look it up because I'm not an OB by, by career, but you know we do a lot of OB care. But the decision to continue aspirin in the presence of obstetric bleeding or bleeding risk should be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. You can decide to stop at 36 weeks or continue until delivery based on your clinical judgment or on your local protocol. Exactly. So the bottom line, guys, recommend low-dose aspirin to pregnant women who are at increased risk for preeclampsia after 12 weeks of gestation. Great. So now we're going to talk about another uh, update. It's about chlamydia and gonorrhea screening. Um, I don't know if this is really an update, but we can see what they published on September 14, 2021. So the USPSTF recommended screening women younger than 24 years old who are sexually active for both chlamydia 
and gonorrhea infection. Also screen all women 25 years and older who are at increased risk. So increased risk, that just means a previous or coexisting STI, history of incarceration, and any kind of sexual intercourse out of the mutually monogamous relationship, such as a new partner, more than one partner, partner who has sex with other partners, partner with an STI, history of exchanging sex for money or drugs. And the screening for GCN chlamydia in women is a great B recommendation. Again, offer this service to your patients. So in this recommendation by the USPSTF, the term women refers refers to persons born with female genitalia and does not apply to persons who identify as women but have male genitalia. Yeah, that means if you have male genitalia, you have to follow the recommendation for male. Mm -hmm. So this recommendation also includes pregnant persons and adolescents. So any, any women who is sexually active uh, should be screened for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Mm -hmm. And the evidence is insufficient, grade I, to assess the balance and benefits and harms of screening for chlamydia and gonorrhea in asymptomatic men. Remember, a grade I recommendation is not a recommendation for or against a preventative intervention. To make it easy to remember, I stands for, I don't know, more research is needed. Yeah, great. Recommendations about the age to start screening or the frequency of screening is not given explicitly in this guideline. But the population with the highest incident is women between ages 15 to 24. So use your clinical judgment to determine when to start and how often you should be screening these women. Great. So now we're going to have another update, Dr. Civelli. What's the next update that we have? Okay. So our next topic of the day, pre-diabetes and diabetes screening. So on August 24th, 2021, that's right, the USPSTF updated their recommendations for pre-diabetes and diabetic screening. The recommendations state that screening for pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes in adults aged 35 to 70 who have overweight or obesity, meaning BMI over 25, clinicians should offer or refer patients with pre-diabetes to effective preventative interventions. This is a grade B recommendations. So the age to start screening is now 35 years old instead of the previous recommended age 40. So this is an update from the recommendation given in 2015. Okay, so 35, we start the screening. We should consider screening at a younger age in persons from groups with high incidence and prevalence. These groups include American Indian, or Alaska Natives, Asian American, Black, Hispanic or Latino, or Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander persons. Also persons with family history of diabetes, history of gestational diabetes, or a history of polycystic ovarian syndrome. So um, for in the case of Asians, Asian Americans, uh, the BMI considered to start screening is BMI above 23. And um, yeah, 23 and above. Okay, so how to screen for prediabetes and diabetes? You have three great options. So fasting glucose, meaning normal below 100 or prediabetes below 125 or complete diabetes would be above 126. 
the hemoglobin A1C is a great tool too. So normal is below 5.6. Pre-diabetes is below 6.4, so that means between 5.7 and 6.4 will be pre-diabetes, and diabetes is above 6.5%. Remember, do not use point-of-care A1C for screening for diabetes. You have to use a venous sample uh, to screen for diabetes. Okay, and then for our other option, so oral glucose tolerance testing in the morning, meaning they're fasting, measure glucose two hours after ingesting 75 gram of oral glucose. So normal would be below 140, pre-diabetes below 200, and if they have diabetes, their value would be above 200. The diagnosis of pre-diabetes or type 2 should be confirmed with repeat testing before starting intervention. Also, uh, this is good for health fairs or when you are like doing random screening. If you have a random glucose which is above 200, it is highly suggestive of diabetes. So you have to retest this patient or, um, you know, give him an appointment to, to be checked uh, at the clinic. So the diagnosis of diabetes should be confirmed before starting any intervention. Absolutely. And so just to summarize all of the fabulous points we have discussed today, aspirin for preeclampsia prevention, screen for gonorrhea and chlamydia, all women younger than 24, and screen for diabetes in everyone older than 35 with overweight or obesity. That's a great summary. Thank you so much, Dr. Civelli. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the HIV series with the Rio Bravo Q-Week podcast. Today's episode will focus on HIV transmission. People infected with HIV are often thought to be contagious even by touch, though the reality is transmission is primarily transmitted via sexual contact, bodily fluids, from mother to baby during pregnancy, shared needles, or accidental needle sticks in the medical workplace. And when it comes to sex, it is common that a person is afraid to engage in any sexual contact with an HIV positive person, even though the person, the patient, or the person may have their infection controlled with medicines. Yeah, um, Robert, I've, I have several patients with HIV and I really love them. I respect them. And um, one of the patients recently diagnosed was very scared when she got diagnosed. She thought that she had to be isolated that she had to be put in a basically in a room and not being able to contact any human. But uh, after educating her, she was more relaxed and she understood that she was not able to pass the infection to other people that easy. So it requires some it requires some work to be able to infect other people with HIV. So and it's good that we're going to talk about the transmission of HIV during this um, segment. So. This patient and other patients can be more relaxed about their disease. Fully agree. Education is so important and to allow us to continue living our, our, our lives. Yeah. So uh, per the CDC or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the most common ways of contracting HIV are through sex without protection, uh, through needles, and uh, prenatal transmission from mother to child. Mm-hmm. So, starting off with sexual transmission, with anal sex specifically, the receptive partner or uh, another term for receptive bot, uh, partner in the gay community is a bottom, um, is at higher risk of contracting HIV 
because the rectal mucosa is thin, more prone to microabrasions, and it creates an opportunity to contract HIV. The insertive partner, or top, is also at risk of infection via the opening of the urethra, the foreskin of an uncircumcised penis, or any cuts, scratches, or open sores on the penis. With vaginal sex, the woman can be infected via the mucous membranes that line the vagina and the cervix, and the man can become infected from the vaginal fluid or blood that may carry HIV. So, and that includes other mucosas too, right? Oral sex. So, it's another way to transmit HIV. Correct. But, um, I believe the, the CDC did mention that it is hard for HIV to survive in the saliva. Oh, so, okay. it at least there is that um, the lower risk through oral sex. Okay, so genital sex is it has a higher risk of transmission. Correct, and okay. anal sex being the one that has the highest risk. Okay, good. So another common way is needle sticks. Sharing needles is a high-risk behavior for contracting HIV. If one person has HIV and uses a needle, then the blood of that person is carried on the needle, and it can inject the virus directly into the other patient the receptive patient in the bloodstream directly. So, or it can be like also under the skin, but it can direct directly inject the virus on the other person. This can occur in people uh, who are sharing needles, especially if they are injecting drugs or medications, or even in a needle stick accident that may occur when treating patients in a hospital or clinic with uh, to patients with HIV. And I think in a later episode, we are going to talk about uh, post-exposure prophylaxis but you mentioned an interesting statistic about uh, needle sticks in the workplace. Yeah, so the risk is lower of needle sticks, especially if it's occupational. The risk is less than 1%. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next common, most common uh, avenue for HIV transmission is vertical transmission. So from mother to fetus. Uh, perinatal transmission occur when the mother is infected with HIV and passes the infection to her newborn. It is now recommended to test every pregnant woman with for HIV and treat as needed. This can occur while the fetus is in the womb or upon delivery. It is recommended that the mother be placed on HIV medications immediately to reduce the risk of infecting the baby. Yeah, and also when the babies are born, so there is an, a protocol to follow to to give uh, the baby antiretrovirals to prevent that infection, depending on the viral load of the mother. Um, so these are ways how HIV is not transmitted, Robert. I think it's important that we mention that because people think that it can be transmitted in other ways, but it has it has been uh, proven that kissing on the cheeks is not a way to pass HIV, right? Hugging other people or holding hands or shaking hands, that's not a common way to pass HIV. Uh, sharing silverware or sharing even the toilet is not a, uh, an easy way to contract HIV. Or, for example, talking to someone, saying hello, being nice, that's not a way to get HIV from other people. Or even mosquitoes or ticks or other bugs that uh, can bite a person with HIV, it's not possible to get that infection through mosquitoes or through insects. Yeah. Yeah, no, those are really important to discuss. I think. There's a lot of misconceptions 
there's a lot of assumptions uh, from the general public. And as you mentioned the patient earlier, um, these are the reasons why it's important to talk about both transmission, also just ways of not being able to transmit it. Yeah, and this topic is very extensive and I appreciate that you are talking about this interesting topic. Thank you, Robert. Now we conclude our episode number 68, Prevention, Aspirin, STIs, and Diabetes. Dr. Ariaza and Dr. Savelli explained the most recent updates by the USPSTF regarding use of aspirin to prevent preeclampsia, screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia in women, and screening for diabetes in patients older than 35. Robert continued with his HIV series and explained how HIV is mostly transmitted, a good reminder for all of us that the most common way of transmission continues to be sexual transmission. Even without trying, every night you go to bed being a little wiser. Thanks for listening to Real Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at rbresidency at clinicaservista.org or visit our website, riobravofmrp.org backslash qweek. This podcast was created for educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza, Hassani Sin, Valerie Savelli, and Robert Dunn. Audio by Sarajamruthia. See you next week.